Okay, so as you know, uh, last week there was the major worldwide, worldwide climate event. Everyone is, is celebrating with Sylvester. Celebrating with Sylvester. He's not here, that's where he is, he's meeting us. Are you talking about this? I told him not to come. I told him not to come. He's talking about the climate change thing? Yeah. Oh yeah, that was important. This one now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, important voice. Tongue in cheek. <laughs> so um, last week, over a hundred world leaders met to discuss in Paris to discuss um, climate change and global warming, um, which is a theory that refers to the world getting warmer. And uh, some scientists say that this could have disastrous effects on our weather patterns. Look, it's Houston, it's 70 degrees outside today. It's supposed mm -hmm. to get to 70 degrees. It's all, uh, um, it's all global warming. And that's why actually the chicken, if anything tastes bad today, you can blame it on global warming. Um, yeah. No, it's a cage. It's not my fault. Okay. So, um, and by the San Bernardino shooting, it's also because of global warming, mm -hmm. according to some scientists. Because the people get so hot, they just yeah. they need a. That's why we have terrorism. So, but but basically, I would like to discuss some of the issues from a more serious perspective, from the Torah perspective, not from the scientific perspective. Because honestly, I really don't know enough about it. Speaking to, to I have spoken to scientists who do not agree. It seems like, and this scientist explained to me, um, he's actually someone in our shul. I spoke to Jeff Yaris. I don't know Jeff Yaris. He's the geo. What does he do? Geo geophysicist, one of the probably biggest people in his field. Um, he does. The only disclaimer is he does work for Halliburton. Um, mm. So that might skew his, his perspective. But um, he told me that he really, the scientists that he's spoken to at various conferences, there are the scientists are just the scientists who don't believe in are just scared to speak up because if you don't, if you s publicly say today that you don't believe in global warming or you don't believe it's as disastrous as people are claiming, and uh, you, you really, like, you can be blacklisted almost to a certain extent as a scientist and where you're able to speak. So people are just scared of, of speaking up. That's what he told really? me. Really? I mean, it's such an accepted thing today that if, if you have to be careful what you, you want to rush people now. You know, what you say publicly and, and who you work for, etc. That's amazing. Well, but the bottom line is, he's, he's not saying it doesn't exist at all. Constant global warming. Well, it's hard he's just not saying to say global, not global change. Climate change. So there's climate a few changes things. Oh yeah. No, yeah, but the question yeah, is, is it cyclical or is it, no, it's it's is it proven? Is it proven that is that it's that it's man-made? Is the question. There clearly, is we're in a cycle of global warming. No one's denying the, the facts. The question is, is it human-made or is it just a cyclical thing that's been happening for the last for a thousand of years? Uh, no, you're right. It could potentially create problems. Again, the question. Now, the other question, which so so again, we're not to discuss the scientific facts. I, I'm not a scientist. I don't claim to be. I don't claim to know the scientific facts. But um, the other question is so so assuming even assuming that it is man-made, the question the next question becomes: Can we prevent it by by stopping certain things? That's question number two. Which again, I don't know the answer. That's a scientific question. Um, and assuming man can prevent some of what's happening, um, some of the global warming or other other various issues that are that are um, that are problematic, um, the question is: Are we obligated to prevent it? Um, that's question number number two or number three actually. And question number four is: Let's say by by stopping it or by doing things which will potentially prevent future global warming. Um, it can have, have an adverse effect on society financially in a very big way. It can put people out of business, it can put certain things we do, it can change our lifestyle, or the way we, we can we use cars, can we have cows, can we continue to eat meat? Okay, all these questions. So, even, so now there's four questions here that I, again, the first two really are scientific, enough for me to address. First, the first two questions are. Um, really factually, is there a problem with global warming? Uh, question number two is, even if there is a problem with global warming, is it man-made? Um, okay, that's question number two. So we're going to focus on question number three and four is, 
do we have an obligation to do something assuming that it is man-made? Um, and question number four is, even if we can do something, actually I skipped, it's really, that's question. Question number three is, can we do something? Or was that question? No, number should three? we? Question number three Fair is, should we do we. something? Question number four is, even if we can and are obligated to do something, what happens if the, the does the economic question counteract um, the the issue of our, our major obligation to protect the world? Does that override or counteract? How do you balance the 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 economic question versus the the question of us protecting our world? Okay, so got all all four questions. You can take notes. Right. Yes. If you want to add more questions, you can. no. Remind me. I have a checking question to ask you. Hi. How are you? Hey. Excellent. Thanks. I told uh, David he can't come today. So just for your sake. I told him people don't want to see him smile. He you said, well, if I come, I he said, I said he can come, but he can't smile. So he said, oh, well, if I can't <laughs> smile, I'm not coming. And he stormed out. Stormed out. Okay, so question, so again, you missed the four questions, but you'll get the answer. You got food? Food is kosher. Okay, so how would you respond? So the question, I put it in a very simplistic question. Um, which is the plans have been completed for the extensive construction project. The land has been purchased, the money raised, full teams, oh sorry, you don't have a cup, I apologize. The full teams um, of workers are ready to begin. The success of this venture will virtually assure a bright future for your company and a failure could be financially devastating. Suddenly you're advised that the project will play havoc on the local environment with a particularly destructive effect on certain endangered water life in the region. Okay. So the question is, again, this is in a more simplistic level, on an individual level, the, the questions we discussed till now, there's a societal, as a society, what are our obligations? And then there's the question as me as an individual, I have a business, and if I, um, my business might be doing something which has an adverse effect on the environment, am I obligated to lose my business, or in this case, lose an account, or lose a project, um, because of the environmental effect it will have on the, on the area? Now we covered it, we did a class on Yes. So, okay. So this. So again, you can change it. I put it happened to be endangered waterlife. It could be uh, will have an effect on the rainforest, on the on, on the ozone layer, whatever it may be. Whatever your business is, right? That's actually your. You have a very environmental friendly business with your. No. And actually, your your does your your buggies yeah, do they give? Do they hurt the ozone layer? What do they run on? What do they run on? What is it? What is it? Hurt? What do they run on? Batteries. Oh, okay. So that's not bad. That's not bad. And the and the batteries are produced in China, anyways. Batteries. Um, but I'm saying your other thing, your bike. Uh, that's all bike. human power. Right, that's human power. So that's awesome. We already know where to start. You need to have an eco green label on. Beautiful. So, just to kind of go into the how would you respond, we're talking By the way, that's why we also now just want to make a disclaimer. We never serve beef at this class because, as you know, the highest form of, uh, the most dangerous to the ozone layer is beef, is cow flatulence. I don't know if you know that um, in the world. Highest, that's the most dangerous to the ozone layer, and that's why we never serve beef in here. We always serve chicken. Very nice. To be a very friendly. Exactly. I like it. Just letting you know. Yes. So, it does lead... It, particularly destructive effect on certain endangered water life in the region. I mean, you've got some outs here to make it kind yeah, of seem well, there, not, This is just a nice uh, question. I mean, this, that's not really the question. You missed the four questions we were discussing. Meaning, uh, this is just to put it in practical terms for business, because this is a business ethics class. So what does environmental change have to do with business? That's why I'm putting it. So further, if it's a business then, and it's going to do all this great stuff, the business is going to make a profit, right? That's the question is, does profit override the danger? Because we are Jews at the end of the day. So we need to know how that works. Okay, so, so we're going to start with, so again, we're going to start as we usually do with some basic Torah principles from the Torah. It seems to be from the Torah itself. And then the question is, is there exceptions to that, how that works? Okay, so number one is in Genesis, first portion, as soon as God creates the world, there's a fascinating dichotomy in within the verses, which you might have done this, by the way, but I think it was 2011, we discussed some of this, so I don't remember it, so I'm assuming you don't remember it, 
and therefore we're going to read it again. So, uh, but the verses in Genesis say like this: um, Number one, Genesis two fifteen. It's actually twice it's repeated. Excuse me, in Parshat Barashas, and it says there, chapter two, fifteen is what I'm going to quote. That's um, and we do in the Hebrew, and then we'll translate it. It says like this. Um, first verse, actually, no, let's start with 128, sorry, let's go in order here. 128, it means the first chapter, as soon as God creates the world, he gives us instruction as to uh, the environment and how we have to treat the world. Um, so it says, after it says, God creates man in his image. Um, okay, first thing is God blesses them. What's the first mitzvah in the Torah, as we know? Procreation. Got to have children. Okay, so actually it's a questionable if this is the commandment, this is the Adam here, or it's just a, um, a blessing. Because it says here, God blessed Adam. In Parsha Noah, God again repeats the same blessing. After the flood, God repeats the Noah. You should be fruitful and multiple. Same exact wording. So the question is, one is, it seems like one, Talmud says, one's a blessing and one's a commandment. And the question is, which one's which? It's not clear to opinion. Well, I would think both would be a commandment because of the circumstances. They're both alone. Yes, but the, again, the question, uh, we don't repeat words. God doesn't mince words. So, well, so the assumption is one's a commandment, one's a blessing. Because again, in both cases, he uses the language of blessing. Okay. God blesses them. Vayom says to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. Weren't the animals also given the same blessing? Um, not here. Uh, maybe later on. Later on or earlier. Yeah, so here it doesn't say. Animals can't be commanded. Obviously, to be fruitful, but they don't—they don't have commandments. Yeah, but I'm saying they don't—they can't be commanded. Animals do it; it's instinct. It's not a commandment. Right. But even non-Jews are not commanded. It's only the commandment is to be fruitful, multiply. It's only given as it's only a mitzvah for Jews. Not one of the seven Noahid laws. Non-Jews do not have to be fruitful, multiply. That's why, technically, they—they can use birth control. The whole Habilavi thing, Catholics. Technically, they're not commanded being fruitful and multiple. Even though here the commandment was to Adam, but the way it works is if it's repeated again, the assumption is only for Jews. Um, it doesn't mean they shouldn't have children. Um, but again, the, it's not one of the six, the six thir- it's one of the six thirteen. It's not one of the seven Noahim. Okay? Um, so now the next, the verse continues. After God commands be fruitful and multiply, it says, the Kivshua, you shall capture it. Literally would be the translation, or the article translates. Subdue it, subdue the earth. That's an interesting word. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. And uh, rule over the fish of the sea, and the bird of the sky, and all the living things that move on the earth. Okay, so the, the verse is implying that man, and this is, as we're going to see, a key difference between maybe Jewish environmentalism and secular environmentalism, or American environmentalism, however you want to call it. Is, is this aspect of we don't believe that we are equal to animals as much as you love your dogs and your cats and your pet uh, snake or whatever it is um, we, they're not equal to humans God forbid the Jewish Judaism and the Torah repeats often and here is the first place that humans dominate um, the rest of the world we rule over the other creatures does that mean we should eat them we can't eat them maybe we should can't eat your, your pet hamster and that's a whole different question but, uh, but it's not, as far as clearly the purpose we believe as we're going to see is the world was created for humankind and therefore everything else in it is for our use and we'll discuss what that means okay so that would seem in a certain sense anti-environmentalism that we have a right everything was created for the use of mankind and that's what the Torah is saying here specifically even, even animals surely other resources as it discussed but, as we're going to see, it doesn't mean we should destroy it. And that's what we're going to get to. Yes. I, mean, I found it interesting in two ways. Right? So what's that? I didn't the finish my thought. Let me just finish my thought. Yeah. As opposed to many secular environmentalists and, and animal rights people, for sure, believe that animals are equal to humans. Right. They have a soul, and even plants have a soul, and therefore, how could you kill an animal because they, they have a soul? Or even if they don't have a soul, they're equal to humans. They don't view them as different. That is antithesis to the Torah view, as we're going to see, animals 
even if they have a soul, their soul is not at the same level as humans. Yeah. Not to mean that you can just kill animals for no, for no reason. But they're not equal to humans. That's step number one to understand is Jew- the Jewish view of animal rights. And, and they do, we do believe in animal rights mm-hmm. to a certain extent. And the Jewish view of environmentalism is the world was created for the use of humans, for the purpose of humans. But as we're going to see, that doesn't mean you're not obligated to protect them. Yeah, it's not limitless. So, uh, right, it's not limitless, yes. I mean, I find the word subdue. Mm-hmm. Two reasons. One, at this point where it's mentioned, this is before the, F, the incident got in, correct? Before? Yeah, before the, the sin, Adam's sin. Right, before the sin. Which, in, well, I'm just thinking, you know, they were tending the garden, right? It was, it, was, it was just a matter of, it's almost more like it was a matter of tending, all right? They, you know, they mm-hmm. ate what they wanted, they ate. Well, not I can say after the sin, when they had to actually grow their food and you know work, work, it, the, work the away. brow, the word subdue would be more appropriate at that point. And then the, also the use of subdue. I mean, subdue means you're it's against something you're fighting against. It's almost like there's a battle between earth and uh, and man. Yeah. Earth, earth, earth sin. Earth is sin. Mm, not and, the earth sin. Adam, man sin. And, but in Adam's punishment, the earth was cursed as well. So there had to have been something, uh, and maybe. Sure. And, and the other thing with the trees, you know, they didn't do what he said, right? They, right. They, he wanted okay, and, and so what I'm thinking is that subdue means it could even be part of that, you know, tame the earth as it wasn't tame for me or something. I don't know. That's, you uh, see what I'm saying? Because the earth was cursed for whatever reason we don't know, right? Or something. No, we know the reason, but the point is, Kavshu, it is, a, it is an interesting word I'm trying to see. Rashi talks about it here. Rashi puts yeah, it into the context the of, right. of right. Um, man subduing the earth That's and procreation. Um, meaning also because Rashi, we're not going to go there today, but it's a question of, um, as we know, human nature, at least till recently, was men chase women. Today it's turning around, but um, meaning who's, who's sort of subduing who? Meaning in the sense of. Um, Men and women are subduing the men, that's true. But, uh, but the point is so that Rashi puts it in that context of the question of procreation. Actually, it says one of the reasons um, only men, obviously it takes two to tango, but only men are commanded in procreation, or the mitzvah of procreation. Why? Because it says to a man, it doesn't come naturally. It, naturally, a man just wants to have fun. He doesn't want to have kids. Yeah. A woman nat- has a natural instinct. Females have natural instincts to prefer to be a mother, you know, to, to that's the word I'm looking for cattle and, and have children and have them that's a natural instinct nurture. of a woman to nurture a nurturing instinct mm-hmm. men do not have that nurturing instinct so there's a lot of discussion about that and that's how Rashi understands the, the word subdue here that a, a man has to fight his nature in order to have children because he does he wants to just have a good time he doesn't want to have a commitment of having children mm-hmm. a woman naturally wants to have children um, so that's why that's how Rashi is understanding the word subdue here but, but it's referring to subduing the earth <coughs> you're right there, there seems to be a dichotomy here and especially with the next quote I have here, it's going to run out of time, <coughs> too much time on this part, um, which is the next quote seems also to contradict us. You look at Genesis 2.15, the next chapter in Horatius says, I'll read you the Hebrew because the Hebrew is always better than English, it says, God commanded Al Hadam, a person, Lamar, we call it Sagan Shaochal, one second, wrong passage. Um, God took man he placed them in the garden of Eden to work it and to protect it so that's the key word here God initially is saying when he created man placed him in the garden of Eden which was part of the world his job was to protect it so you see off the bat that part of our mission as humans is to protect the earth okay very clearly, the language here, Shomer, Shomer means to protect. Like Shomer Shabbat, observe the Shabbat. Here it doesn't mean observe as much as protect. Okay? So you see very clearly that that is part of our mission as humans. We have, we're dominant over the animal kingdom, over the earth, over the plant kingdom. So we, we're, we, we the Torah says we rule over them, but we also have to protect the earth. Okay, very clearly, two, two verses. And that's what I quoted here from Rabbi Salavich, number three. He says, two verses represent two aspects of the nature 
the nature of human beings, which are in a constant state of tension. There is unavoidable dynamic tension between the capacity to exercise control over nature and the duty to act toward nature with a sense of fiduciary responsibility. So he says it very clear, in the beginning there's a dichotomy there. There's, there's, a, there's a contradiction between these two verses. And this is part of being human is, yes, we're here, we need to use the resources of the world to survive, at the least on the lowest sense, even for, and for business purposes, which is also survival. So we need to use natural resources. We need energy, we need diamonds for our, for our women in our life. Right, we need um, precious stones, right? We need, we need all these things. This is basic part of being human. Um, but on the other hand, we also have this dichotomy that we have to protect. Because we have a mission to protect the world. So how does that work? And how does that play out? And it's really the question of, that they discussed at this climate change conference. Um, I'm assuming that this is the question they discussed, this dichotomy. So, so um, there's a fascinating medrash. Which also seems to address this. It says like this, number four on the sheet. It says, Consider the work of God, and quote, For who can make straight that which has become crooked? When God created Adam, he showed him all the trees of the Garden of Eden. Number four on the bottom here. And he wants to follow along and said to him, See how nice and praiseworthy my creations are. Everything I created, I created for you. Be careful not to defile or destroy my world, says God. For if you destroy it, there's nobody who will be able to fix it after you. But once you destroy the world, once you destroy the rainforest, it's very hard. <coughs> Only God could build a rainforest. Maybe Moody Gardens, they tried. It cost them a couple of million, but it's, it's just a few right, feet. It's not, not that big. Okay, to create a rainforest, once you destroy a rainforest, it's almost impossible to replicate that. And, and also, once you destroy the species, if a species um, goes extinct, that's it. The show's over. We're not going to create that same species in the lab again. Okay? Um, so this is, and it gives a, an interesting parable. Now, who's number four? It's the at the end. Oh, the parentheses, oh, okay. Medrash Kohelet Rabbah. So this is going on, it's on Kohelet, but it's sort of going on these quoting these verses that we said about Adam. So and the parable gives it's fascinating. It says it's a parable to a pregnant woman who was locked up in a prison, gave birth to a son. There. She gives birth and died in prison. So now this son is born. This child is born in prison. This child doesn't know why its mother ever went to prison. When the king passed by, the woman's son cried out, My master, the king, here I was born, here, here I grew up. For what sin am I stuck here? Because why is it my fault? I'm stuck in this prison. I didn't do anything wrong. I do not know. So the king answered him, With the sin of your mother. So again, Adam, his job was to protect the Garden of Eden. He didn't do his job. And everyone, and the Medrash is saying, everything that came since then, it's the same thing. If, you, if we destroy this world, okay, so future generations are not going to have those resources whatever it may be, right? Future generations will not have rainforests in Brazil, and right now Brazil is a big problem. Right? They're, they're, they're destroying the rainforest in order to, to, for agricultural purposes actually, to plant, okay? So if that happens, the future people of Brazil are, are gonna be lacking those species, whatever we get from the rainforest. I'm not sure what we get, but whatever comes from the rainforest is, not, is gonna be lacking. And whose fault is that? The future generations didn't do anything wrong to, to uh, sort of like inheriting uh, Obama's debt. Right. So uh, future generations are going to be inheriting all the debt um, that we're creating today. Okay. So, so similarly, that's what the Medrash is saying here, the future generations will be suffering by the mere fact of this concept that we're destroying or someone destroyed God's creations. Okay. So it's a fascinating Medrash. That's what the Medrash says. Um, now, uh, I found another fascinating quote from Rav Cook. Rav Cook, as we know, was the first chief rabbi in Palestine before the state of Israel even existed. Brilliant man, um, Kabbalistic, uh, Kabbalist, uh, he knew everything. Um, and he again was the first chief rabbi of the modern state of Israel before the state was founded. And he said like this, he quoting again these verses of that we're in charge of the world. So he says a fascinating thing. He says, there can be no doubt to any enlightened or thoughtful person that the dominion mentioned in the Torah in the phrase, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, which we just read, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that creeps upon the earth, which is what the verse says, okay, that we as humans have dominion over everything in this earth. He says, it's not the dominion of a tyrant who deals harshly with his people and servants in order to achieve his own personal desires and whims. It's not the goal here. It doesn't, the Torah says as humans we have dominion over the world. It doesn't mean, you know, we, it's ours, we can do whatever we want with it. It, it would be unthinkable to legislate so repugnant a subjugation 
have forever. He wrote this in Hebrew. But this is not my translation. It's quoted a, subju- a subjugation. Have forever engraved upon the world of God, who is good to all, whose mercy extends to all. He has created as he has created, as is written. The earth is founded upon mercy. So, meaning, of course, at the end of the day, even though we have dominion, so this applies to animals, and of course to to the rest of the world, to the earth, to the rainforest, to the to uh, to, the, to the oceans, whatever it may be. That even though we have dominion, doesn't mean we can do whatever we want with it. Obviously, there's a concept of mercy, especially when it comes to animals, as we'll see. And this is a, a great discussion when we discussed, uh, I think, in the rodeo, the issue of animals and animal rights. But it's a similar concept there, which is, of course, we rule over animals as humans. Yes, we believe animals are on a lower plane than us. But, as the Rambam says, the Rambam says in the Guide to the Perplexed, and Manly says, that we have to have mercy on animals. And we see that throughout the Torah. There are many um, mandated laws, amongst them something known as as Tzar uh, Balachayim, causing undue pain to animals. It's prohibited. It's a biblical prohibition, according to most. And there's a famous, the famous law we discussed of shooing away the mother bird. If you're going to take um, a, mother, a baby, a chick, or eggs, you have to shoo away the mother first. On the surface, the simple reason would be to say because it's mercy. My man, he says, actually, it's prohibited to say that. Um, but he says it's not mercy for the animal. He views it as it's, it's mercy for us as humans. We need to teach ourselves how to have an attribute of mercy. God wants us to be merciful creatures. So it's not for the animal. It's not that we care, says the Roman man, is a fascinating thing. It's not that we care about the animal. The issue is the world was created for us as humans. As us as humans, we have to have, be merciful people. Because that we have to train ourselves to be merciful. How we train ourselves? by being merciful to animals, so, so to speak, excuse, excuse the pun, the animals are guinea pigs. For us, we have to become merciful human beings. How do we become merciful? By training ourselves. We take in a stray cat, we feed them, but it's not that we care about the cat, because the cat, in the, in the scheme of things, of this earth, is not, that's not our mission in life, is to care about cats. It's a beautiful thing, you want to care about cats, it's a nice thing. But our mission is for us to be merciful human beings. To other human beings, how do we train ourselves and how do we acquire the attribute of becoming merciful? By being merciful to animals. And the same holds to the earth. If we just don't care about the earth, it's like a little bit. If you look at people who throw things out their window, throw beer bottles out their window, draw all their driving, it's not. It's a certain personality. It, uh, right? You have to train yourself not to be that personality. It's not that we care about the beer bottle. It's not that something more than necessarily the beer bottle on the road or, or your Whataburger wrapper on the street. It's, it's, that, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a certain attribute as human beings. We shouldn't just have this carefree attribute about the world. So similarly, um, that might be, it's not that we care about dinosaurs per se. It's, again, it might be because as human beings we need to, we can't be thinking we are, we're tyrants and we can do whatever we want with this world. Another aspect, by the way, some, some say, which I didn't put down here on the sheet, is the reason why we, um, I forgot, I think it's the Ramban, Nachman, who states this, that the reason why we shoo away the mother bird um, is because you, if you take both, if you take the bird and its chick, that can lead to extinction of a, of a species. So that's interesting that I just remembered that I didn't put it on the sheet here. Nachmanli says that, that you don't, we don't, we shoo away, if you're going to take the chick or the eggs, you need to shoo away the mother because you want at least one of the species to survive. You don't want to take a mother and it's a child on the same day. And by the way, that's a law in Shechita also, in the laws of slaughtering. It's a prohibition, a biblical prohibition. It's called Imov has been, I forgot the exact language. You can't slaughter on the same day a mother and its calf on the same day. So again, a biblical prohibition. And some say, Ramban says, for this very same reason, because you can cause the extinction of a species. You want to at least have either leave the calf alone, let the calf grow up, or at least leave the mother alone so she can produce more calves. But to slaughter both on the same day is a problem. It's a whole question now that in, in today's modern day slaughter, how do you know you're not getting mother and its calf? So we rely on majority. Because we don't know. Because a farm, let's say slaughterhouse gets in a truckload of cows, how do we know there's not a parent and child? So the assumption is because majority aren't, you can assume there isn't. But technically, if you're on a farm and you know this is a mother and calf, it's a problem. We produce, yes. Yeah. Okay, so so this is a, this is more the philosophical aspect, and now we're going to get into more of the nitty gritty, the legal aspects of it. But philosophically, clearly, you see here the concept 
of environmentalism exists within Judaism, no question. In principle, it exists. Even though the Torah says we have dominion over the earth and over species in the earth and clearly over animals, but um, that still means we still have an obligation to protect it and to cultivate it. Okay, so if you're doing something which explicitly is not, is, is not cultivating it, that's a problem. Okay, so that's as far as philosophically as you see here from my Salvechik, from Rav Cook, from the Medrash and Kohelet, very clearly there's a problem with destroying um, the world. Whether it be the ozone layer, whether it be the rainforest, whether it be species, there clearly is a problem philosophically with injuries. Okay, now, there's a fascinating law, as we mentioned, there's something else, besides the law, as we said, painting animals, which is a separate issue, there's something called, um, called there's a general prohibition, biblical, again, according to most, called Baal Tashchis. Is anyone familiar with this? Has anyone heard this term? Baal Tashchis. The Torah talks about it. I didn't, I didn't have room here on the sheet to quote the verse. There's a verse in, it's actually the context of war. It's a fascinating verse. It says, the Torah says in Parshati Savo, I believe, Deuteronomy. If I can find it. Um, talking about war, there's a lot of, as we know, we're not a, as Jews, we're not a pastor society, but we have a lot of regulation when it comes to war. One of those regulations, the Torah says, is if you come, even in wartime, you cannot chop down fruit trees. Okay, I think we might have discussed this here in the past. There's a prohibition. This is, by the way, George Washington chopped down cherry trees. Terrible thing. It's a biblical prohibition. Uh, no, even that one. So the halacha is, by the way, says, says the Ramaymanis rules, and it's from the Gemara, that you cannot chop down a fruit tree, a fruit-bearing tree. Why is that? Because it's what's called destruction. You're destroying something that produces fruit for the world. You can't do that. You can't destroy, it's called baltashchis, wanton destruction, wasteful destruction, as I put here. Um, and that's prohibited. Maimonides goes ahead and, and broadens the law, not just to fruit trees. He says there's really prohibition for any destruction in the world, any wanton destruction. Um, my father was a, was a Holocaust survivor. I'm assuming this is where it came from. He was very frugal. He also was Jewish. Um, so, uh, but he's, he, if you left uh, the cardinal sin in my home when growing up, was if you left the light on, you know, you walked out of your bedroom and you left the light on, or you went to school, it was like he'd make you come up from school to shut the light. He was like, God forbid, today, like I tried to impart that to my children, like that concept doesn't exist today. Like, not shutting a light, you tell your kids, like, shut the light. Like, why? I don't get it. So, no, it's, it was waste. I mean, it was wasteful. You're using electricity. No one's in the room. The worst sin possible you can do in my home. Sure, if you and if you left food on your plate, that sure, like, you, you had to come back to the table, finish it, or now you got it tomorrow night for dinner. Same food. Seriously? Yeah, I'm exaggerating, but I'm, okay. but I'm saying it was very you waste. Were not, you were not the concept of waste yeah. of anything, electricity, food, anything was. Uh, so that comes from it's really there's a prohibition, it's a mitzvah, not not to waste. Again, wanton destruction, wasting is destruction. If something is. Something you should know. I'm in the kosher food industry. It bothers me immensely. You see in hotels, going to hotels or, or retail stores, uh, supermarkets. I mean, it's a, the amount of waste, you know, because it's, after an event, you go to some ADL event, there's feeding thousands of people, and their food just goes in the garbage. Mm-hmm. These are homeless, hundreds of homeless people could be fed with this. Um, there's actually, I, I mentioned one so thing. It's not even always their fault. It could have been regulations. Oh, I sp- I've spoken to the hotels. They're scared of a liability. There's no regulations. Actually, supermarkets might have that, but it's more they're scared of the liability if they give it to an employee and the employee gets sick. If they would give it to me, so they can get sued. In other words, if you get E. coli, yeah, they so they can get sued. Right, so that's what they're concerned about. And in, in actually, interesting, in New York, they started an organization called Sheiruta Plate. Um, it's called uh, The Leftovers of the Plate. It's a it's a Hebrew word, plate, means it's actually refuge, whatever, it's a long story, it's a play on words. But they go to caterers and they pick up all the food afterwards and, it, and it's dropped off at yeshivas who serve it for lunch every day the next day. So they, hundred in New York, they have hundreds of Jewish, well, I don't know, hundreds, since so you have 20 weddings a night. There's, like a, there's, a, New York. there's a second volunteer. It just started, yeah, which yeah. I tried, I wanted to get it to Tom Shabbos actually, to try to get the food, the kosher food going to Tom Shabbos. Do they have a, they have, oh. protect, have a legal protection from the government? 
I was wondering if the state maybe created like a Good Samaritan law where you don't get sued if you try to No, so unfortunately they don't have that. So many hotels won't do it. I've spoken to them over the years. Many hotels won't give give their food away. Some agree, but they have to sign a waiver. It's like a whole thing. It's, it's like complicated. Um, so, but the point is, even supermarkets. I mean, I've been in the back end of yeah, supermarkets, they, and they throw out. Yeah. They won't give it to the employees. You have people getting paid eight dollars an hour, yeah. who, who are desperate for this food, fruit. I mean, cut of fruit, all this stuff, chicken. It's terrible. It's just uh, so that concept. In my house, they would all be banned. But the point is that that um, it, it almost doesn't exist. So that prohibition, known as baltashkes, again, the Hebrew term is baltashkes. It has to do with, again, it's part of it is also destroying the environment. It's not just actual goods, as it says here. This is a quote from, hmm, I don't know it's from, but it's from the Chinuch. I forgot to put this down. I forgot to put the parentheses, who's, who's from. It says, the mitzvah, this mitzvah teaches us to love the good and productive and to distance ourselves from all forms of destruction. The great and pious individuals loved peace and saw the positive in people and brought them close to the Torah. They would not destroy even a single mustard seed. There's a story in the Talmud. Um, where someone would destroy mustard seed, just one little mustard seed, and were bothered by any form of destruction and tried to prevent it. The opposite is, the opposite is the way of evil. Individuals rejoice in the destruction of the world. As you see today, ISIS, you know, they go ahead and blow up, you know, anything they get their hands on, let's just blow it up. Archaeological sites, whatever is religious, even if it's not religious. Um, anything that, uh, part of evil is destruction. Obviously, there's, 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 there's well, constructive the destruction. Right, no, it's part of, uh, I'm not saying, there is constructive destruction, as we'll see soon. So, but in general, people destroy things are usually not nice people. Okay, so, so the point being is, waste and destruction is prohibited. Um, chopping down a fruit tree is prohibited. Now, what's, and this is what gets to the other part, the other end, which I'd like to discuss, meaning, the question becomes, where you have, what about, again, the, the principle we said is we rule the world. As humans, the world was created for us and to serve us. Okay, but we can't destroy things. So what happens where there's a constructive purpose in the destruction? So let's say I take the classical example would be I have a fruit tree. So I have an olive tree. Okay, or I have a maple tree or um, a cherry tree. Cherry wood is very expensive. If you ever bought furniture, cherry wood is very pretty. Um, it's hard to come by. So it's very expensive. So now what happens if I have a cherry field, a field of cherry trees? Okay, so I can't destroy it. The Torah says don't destroy fruit trees. But what happens if that cherry wood will gain me more than selling cherries? So I'm a farmer, I'm a cherry farmer. The guy said, by the way, cherries are nice, but that's only, you know, they're, you know, two bucks a pound. The cherry wood, you can get, if you cut down your trees and sell the wood, you're going to be getting, you know, thousands of dollars from your tree as opposed to two dollars a pound of your cherries okay so and what happens then do I still say the Torah says I can't cut down the fruit tree so what do you say in that situation Daddy what do you say I have to make a living I mean I find it's an interesting I can make a living from cherries well, who said I need to make a living from cherry wood I think it's an wood? interesting concept but you know I can understand it if you said alright the fruit no longer bears fruit no. Yeah, that's what I'm okay, what it's interesting how, fruit? you know, beyond the economic value, there's a certain value, you know, humanity value of the tree producing fruit. fruit. Everyone I chop down on plant. That's, that's gorgeous, carbon footprint. Paying, you know, you go fly in a plane, you pay uh, pay for the carbon footprint. I mean, if I'm in the cherry really wood business, I'm going to want more cherry wood, so, so I'm going to need more cherry trees. That's a different story. That's Oh, here we're saying, uh, yeah, that's the question. Can I be in the cherry wood business? I'm cutting down cherry trees. Well, it's like uh, if you have the mother and the calf. So you can't eliminate both. So you can't cut them all down, but you can cut down half of them, harvest cherries okay. with the other half, and then Maybe. when they mature more... And well, let's say I only have one cherry tree. So you tell me if I have one cherry tree, I can't cut it down. No. Yeah, that's what I would say. I would say that. But if you're a cherry tree farmer and you've got a bunch of them, cut them down. Okay, so, so the cherry wood went down. Now the fruit's worth more. So, is, so says Maimonides, survey says, Maimonides says that you are allowed to. Meaning, because again, the, he understands the philosophy, not he, most understand, behind this law is why can't you cut down fruit trees? Because it's wanton destruction. But if by cutting it down, you're gaining more than you're destroying, so that's not destruction. Destruction is defined by 
I'm destroying something. If by destroying something, you know, let's say I have a skyscraper, I'm going to build a skyscraper, I'm going to cut down a tree to build a skyscraper, so, so the gain here is I'm having a skyscraper. So there's no destruction. You don't view that as destruction. I'm, not, I'm destroying, yes, I'm, I'm losing a tree, but I'm gaining a skyscraper. So if you're losing some cherries and you're gaining cherry wood, so that's not destruction. That's what my man says. Therefore, even if you only have one tree, the prohibition is destruction. If the net gain is going to be more by destroying it, then, 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 then you look at the net gain. That says, says Maimonides. And this is applied not just to cherry trees. So now the question is how, where do you draw the line? Let's say um, I have a fruit tree in my backyard and my wife wants to expand the kitchen and make it bigger. I'm going to have to chop down the, 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 my cherry tree in my backyard. So I'm gaining my house. What happens if it's blocking my view? What happens if the fruit tree is blocking my view? Can I now cut down my fruit tree? Um, that's blocking the view of the window. How? Where's? Where do you view a net gain? What's called a net gain and what's called? So I think it's sensible, but the idea of a cherry tree, if if the value of the wood is more, you're allowed to chop it down. Okay, so now you you're dealing with the tree, but to sit here and knock down the one tree, so you can put a building on it. All right. It's not necessarily be the same trade-off. What's it? What is? How you Less or more? Well, I'm just thinking. It's, it's not that, I mean, ends what the building is. Okay. Right, but the but the but the value we're determining in the first example is based on the tree itself. Is it the wood or is it the cherry the fruit? All right, it's right. all within. It's all the whole equation is based based the tree. within the tree. Whereas one's either the tree exists or doesn't, or something that's not even. But again, if, if the dis my destruction is going to benefit me, net gain. It's not just on. So then, so, so I look at the whole picture. Okay. I'm saying, look at the net gain. Why am I destroying this tree? Am I destroying this tree and, and now I'm going to lose cherries? Yes, you're going to lose cherries, but I'm gaining a skyscraper. And who's benefiting? So in this case, we're saying the individual's benefit is better than society's benefit. Well, well skyscrapers for society, it's not just my benefit. But you're jobs. the one that's going to directly benefit the most. True. Well, yeah. I'm the cherries also. What if, it's my, if I own the land, I'm going to benefit right, from the cherries. Right, but the idea also. that there's a cherry tree there. Well, also, to society than it would be to cherry trees. Your neighbors or whoever is going to be involved in this, you know, cherry tree becomes in, a, uh, the birds you're going to eat from it. Skyscrapers you know, people are eat from it. So and people eat from it. And, and a skyscraper people doesn't eat from provide skyscraper. Well, yeah, yeah because you, you have it. jobs. It provides yeah, jobs, okay. of course. Yeah. But it's thousands yeah. of jobs. Well, listen, since he's not here, to feed himself. Let's use a apartment conference. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't do apartment. Maybe years ago. But. I mean, I, I, just, I, I find it as, it's an interesting dichotomy because usually we are always, in a lot of cases, I mean, obviously Jewish religion is based on a lot of sense of, sense of respect for the community and everything else. And this responsibility. That is responsibility of the community. That's the yeah. All right, and here we really, you know, if theoretically, what if it's just a house? You know, if you're not a, you know, if you own a house, all right, you gotta live. But okay, but it's like something that's. Yes, you are improving your financial stake is better, obviously, than a skyscraper to a cherry tree. But really, the benefit's really for one person. Uh, it's not true. I mean, thousands of jobs will be created. Yeah, he's thinking offices will now have more office space. Houston will have more offices, yeah, more attractive for the city. Yeah. Now there's more, there's more offices. It's not just me that's benefiting. Everything's a private business. Cherries also is my cherry. But society will benefit from the cherries. Just because I'm making money doesn't mean it's only about me. You're allowed to make money. Money's, making right, money is a good thing. I can't believe I'm taking the opposite here. I'm just finding... I'm trying to... Find <laughs> yeah, decision. what's happening? No, no, I'm, just, okay? find, no, I'm, I'm just trying to... I mean, for me to debate the other side helps me understand it better, obviously. So that's we why I was trying to... find another location. Is there something that popped in something? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but I think the issue comes... Of, okay, so so yes, that we agree, okay, the skyscraper is going to benefit... But if the skyscraper could be moved a foot and a half to save oh. a cherry tree or whatever, yeah, so that's then... True. Yeah, so many times, by the way, you'll see in Bel Air when they're building houses, they'll, they'll right. put a fence around the tree, they'll, they'll mark it off because, and, they, and many times, yeah, they, it won't work because of... But that's really the question. Do, am I obligated to do that? Meaning, let's say there's a financial... I'm going to lose financially because my, my, my sister lives actually in wetlands. Her house is built. Her backyard, they're now at a do anything, not to plant a tree there, not to touch anything with a shovel. She, if she wants to expand her house, she owns the land, but it's it's built on wetland. Okay, so 
how does that work? Am I obligated? Is that from the Torah's perspective? Am I obligated to to not to do anything because it might destroy some worm species that's living there that doesn't live somewhere else? You know, or the birds are not going to have enough of a sanctuary. So that's was so that's again if it's going to make a species, you know, you really need to weigh the final analysis of anything. It needs to be weighed by mainly economic. Judaism will say economic is the net gain, but of course you need to bring in the social and, and moral considerations. So if it's going to kill a species, so that's a major economic yeah. the assumption. Is they all play a role? They're all shared. You know, it's not that's economic. There's moral. There's social. They're not really separate. I mean, they are maybe some and. But they're all connect- interconnected. I mean, you look at the net gain from all three together. You know, it's w- what's going to. You're right. Economically, this might be awesome if we build, a, if we start drilling in Antarctica. But the question now becomes, what's the? How is it going to affect the environment? And what are the ramifications of that for future generations? You know, it all has to be taken effect. Again, at the end of the day, the net gain is what wins out. The net gain of all of those. So it's not just okay. The economy wins out. The money wins out. What is the net gain? Assuming again, based has to be based on facts and not just on hearsay. What some some think tank was being paid by someone said. It needs to be based on the real scientific facts. Assuming there are any, okay, of what the future ramifications are are for this thing, and all that's taken into effect at the end of the day. Understand? Okay, so then, in other words, if you wanted to build, and if you were going to build in an area where you were going to wipe out a certain species that has to have that area to live, then that would be prohibited, correct? Again, assuming there, we I mean, know what the need of that species is and is, is their purpose and is it really going to be wiped out? Do they live somewhere else and there are enough of them? Well, that, you know, there's that some exist species somewhere that else. can only live in certain places. Okay, so right. let's so say, so if so that were the case versus building some building. Yeah, so if it's built, totally de- delete a species from the earth and cause them to be extinct, I would say that might be a problem. If it's well, the black and white one and three quarter inch field metals, that the only distinction is that it is a one and a three quarter inch, and there are billions of mice that are. Okay, a so again, I mean, you just, I, I'm not sure. We need to be based on I, what the ramifications I, of I, eliminating the species. Well, yes. but you have the whole food chain and the whole food. No, so that's you see what people I'm don't saying, think though? about, you know. Well, I, you wipe out the coyote, no, something no else rat. is going. Well, I mean, if, if there's a, a certain rat, a, a calico rat, let's say. Yeah. Well. If that goes away, I don't. I don't know, but I'm just saying there are other rats, there are other things. So I'm not sure that if it's just wiping out a species, we'll do it. Now, if it's the, you know, one-eyed jackalope or whatever it is, and you know, it had some, yeah. some. Okay, maybe, but you see what I'm saying? I, I do. Don't think, I, I do. Don't think but you what what out. you have to remember is that nature is so complex. Yes. That wiping out a species might make right. something else. Be over, you know, it overly abundant, and because everything is a balance. Yeah, just got further. So, like, yeah, Hoover, I understand what you're Dam. saying, but you know, it's yeah. At the Hoover Dam is that, or, or some say, oh, that's great for, mm-hmm. but I mean, or, you are totally altering nature now. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's so, so I'm not sure there's a problem. Again, the issue would be, what's the net gain? That's where we look What's at. What's that loss? You don't really know. Okay, so you have all this. You're right. That's why they have studies. Today. That's why no, but they have studies. That, that's part of the, the building developing today. Is you have to hire a guy to oh, study, okay. and yeah. and that's why they make you make retention bonds around it, yeah. and etc. It's all we try. Listen, it's to the best of our ability. We have to figure it out. But it can't be based on junk science or or like we're saying today, where fear. people are fear, they're scared to say that the whole science is junk because they'll, they'll lose their job in, in teaching university or whatever the case. So that's another part of it. I mean, you have to, it has to be real facts. Halacha is always based on the real facts. I don't know the facts, I can't tell you the facts. So, so it's not for, you can't decide the halacha until you know the facts. I'm just telling you the halachic principles and now they have to be applied to the actual facts in, in each situation. I don't know, and again, I don't know the facts. To speak to your local science, local orthodox science. <laughs> um, okay, so if you turn the page, that's what I put down here. I do only quote one Gemara. There are many Gemaras who say, that's what it says, unless the value of the wood is greater than the value of the fruit. But it also says, let's say you need kindling wood. Let's say you need this. So there's many exceptions to this rule. The rule of wasting, of destruction, not wasting, destruction is, is a very, like you said, biblical prohibition. But again, it's 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 not defined as wasting if there's a net gain for humankind. If you're chopping down a cherry, or if you're to live, 
I mean, your net gain, obviously. What do you mean to live? Well, so, well, okay. If a person needs so wood to live and there's a cherry tree. And wood to live, what do you mean? They're going to die if they don't Yeah, it's cold. You what about, but the, that's for sure. But the question is, that overrides everything. The question is, what happens if I need it to, to, uh, to sell? Like, for just to build furniture. I need a bookcase. That's where it becomes an issue. Okay, or the question then becomes, what happens if I, if I need wood to live on? I need, but, so I have coal. But the coal is causing a hole in the ozone layer. Okay, but I have other forms. I could use wind turbines. So I'm obligated to stop using coal because I could use wind turbines. Well, you just so said we go on science. So this, you can't say ozone layer and talk about science because we just don't know. The ozone layer. Some people claim to know. Claim. That's what I'm saying. So, okay, I mean, so we, we need to find out the facts. I mean, is, is coal causing a problem? And we have other forms of energy to live on. So then, then we need to stop using coal. That's what we're saying. If the facts, again, we don't know, whatever, I don't know the facts. Um, so this is uh, quoted here from the Mechtam Elio, Revelio Desley. It says like this, it says number eight. God created a world that requires human intervention. When humans intervene, they become partners with God. So now, this is a key point, which I also think is we defer with environmentalists. Environmentalists says you have to leave nature to its own, you can only do yoga, and you can't touch anything. It's not for us as humans. We shouldn't be go taking things out of the environment. Shouldn't be digging. We shouldn't take precious stones. Leave them where they are. Shouldn't look, be looking for energy. Things like that. Okay? So that's something that the Torah clearly, the philosophical, philosophically Judaism does not believe. Which is that, again, as we said before, part of being the minions and the rulers over the earth, as we were giving our mission as humankind, is that is exactly part of it. Why did God create a world that we have to serve, we have to dig, and we have to uh, work the earth, and we have to do all these things in order to, to live. And he could have created the perfect world, which you go and everything's ready. Why did, why did he create, and this is actually Tnufus, Trufus is relevant, let's connect to Hanukkah, since today is the last day of Hanukkah, let's realize there's a connection. The question that one of the Greek generals, and this was Greek philosophy, we discussed on Shabbos, I don't know if anyone knew there. Um, Greek philosophy was um, all about the human battle, about nature, and, and and not making, not bringing, using the body for religion, so to speak. Not using nature for religion. Nature is a beautiful thing. It's intellectual nature, you know. Not, why bring religion into it? That was the, the Greek the Hellenists were very against that. That was their whole concept. They didn't, had no problem with Judaism per se, but the fact that Judaism brings religion and spirituality into, into mundane things. Why, why should we bring that? It even bothered them. That's why they outlawed circumcision. Because what do they say? You're saying the body's not perfect. It has to be circumcised to make it perfect. The male body. Why? It's a perfect body. That was the whole thing. The Olympics. You know, there was, as a matter of fact, as we know, many, we're not going to get reading. I don't want to get too graphic. But many Jews who became Hellenists, they actually uh, re-uncircumcised themselves. Okay. It's complicated. But they, because they, they, if you believe in this Hellenistic culture, the body is perfect uncircumcised. Judaism says no, on the contrary. That's what uh, Rufus, that is exact name, but a Greek general asked this question to Rabbi Kiva at the time. He said, What's, what is a greater work? The work of God or the work of man? That was his question. And Rabbi Kiva, realizing it was a trick question, says the, the work of man. And the, guy, the general was shocked. Why is the work of man? He's saying, we do better work than God? He says, yes. God created a world that's unfinished in order that we as humans, our mission is to perfect the world. Tikkun olam. That's the whole philosophy of Judaism in a nutshell is, in a certain sense, this philosophy. Meaning we're supposed to use the resource of the world. We're supposed to take things out of the earth and make them... That's what he said. He said, the example he says, I'll prove. He said, so which is better? A cake or, or flour or wheat? God created wheat and, and three brothers created a cake. Right, which, is a, which is a bigger work? He says, at the end of the day, God created wheat. Why didn't God make cakes? God doesn't. Cakes don't go on trees. We have to work and make cakes. Okay, why? Because that's our mission in life, is to take God's resources of the world, take the wheat of the world, and make them into beautiful cakes. Okay, to take coal and make it into beautiful energy. Take uh, atoms and whatever else, uh, take um, stones out of the earth, and make them into beautiful precious stones. Right? That is our mission as, as Jewish philosophy is tikkun olam, to take nature and refine it. Okay, that is the whole nature. That's, that's very different than secular environmentalism who says, no, leave nature alone. We're not here to leave nature alone. Our job is tikkun olam. God created the world for us as human beings. That's what he says, a beautiful concept. When humans intervene, they become partners with God. And that's why circumcision is the same concept. Okay, circumcision is 
that concept of where God didn't create a circumcision. We're supposed to be perfect. A circumcision is the way we're supposed to be. So God should have created a circumcised. The point is, no, it's to bring this message where is our job is completion. Our job is to perfect ourselves in this world. How do we perfect ourselves? We have to perfect our bodies. We have to perfect our everything, our re, uh, the world by by doing things, using nature to perfect us. That's a very key difference between secular environmentalism and Jewish environmentalism. Resources of the planet can be used for good or for evil. So everything, this is another concept of Judaism, everything can be used for good or for evil in the world. Internet can be used for bad, can be used for good. You can listen to Shur, or you can watch stuff you shouldn't be watching. Okay, so our job is this technology, Al Gore invented the internet. We need to use it. We need to use it for, for spiritual purposes. The internet was created for us to use it for spiritual purposes. That's why internet was created. And therefore, you have Shira Manant and you have websites that are for Torah, JI website. You can make donations for charity, please. Thank you. Um, right, those are, that's all amazing things that the internet does, which you wouldn't have before. I can look up, as a rabbi, I can look up any source. Someone calls me with a question, I say, hold on one second. I, uh, um, what they call it, Yugle it, Yiddish Google. You can Google anything today, find an answer for any halachic question. It's unbelievable. There's resources out there, amazing stuff. Right, so, so any technology or anything that's created on this earth is may, could be used for good or for bad. Coal could be used for good or for bad. Okay, energy could be used, oil could be used for good or bad. So, but our job is to take the world, use those resources for good. And, and that's, by, by the way, we're not going to go there. It goes back to the same NRA uh, argument, debate, which is, so guns, or also guns could be used for good or for bad. You can use guns for good purposes to kill the bad guys, or you can use guns to kill the good people. So guns are... are that's, that was the argument of, as I put down here. Tuval Kain invented metalworks. He invented the concept of weapons. Now, does that mean he's an evil person? No. Just because you invented weapons, weapons are important. You need to defend yourself. So that's a beautiful thing you can do with weapons. Unfortunately, you have people, um, ISIS people and other radicalized Muslims, who are using weapons for bad things. Okay? So, so that doesn't mean the inventor of the weapons are, are bad. So this is the same concept. An obligation to ensure that technologies don't destroy the environment around us. Okay, so that is important, yes. But it doesn't mean the fact that the person who invented uh, oil, energy, that had a refined crude oil, is a bad person. Okay, so that's a very key concept. just want to end off with this last thing, because over time. So this is again from a story that was a famous rabbi. It's a great book. If you haven't got a chance to read it, I think the shul has it. It's called The Tzaddik in Our Times. His name was Rabbi Ari Levine. He actually was the father-in-law of Rabbi Yashin. Fascinating guy. He died in the 60s. And in his, there's a biography about him, so he says the story um, that he once went to visit Rav Kook. This is in 1905 in Palestine. Um, he says, we went out to stroll a bit in the fields. On the way, I plucked some branch of lera. Sometimes, you know, you, you just pick a, he picked off a leaf. On the way, while they were walking, he put it in his mouth, chewing it. He was taken aback, says Rabbi Cook, and then told me gently. This is what Rav Kook said to him. Believe me, in all my days I have taken care never to pluck a blade of grass or flower needlessly when it has the ability to grow a blossom. You know the te- meaning this is not even something that has a purpose, technically. It says, you know the teaching of the sages that there is not a single blade of grass below here on earth which does not have a heavenly force telling it to grow. So a Kabbalah, the Kabbalah states that if a piece of grass in order for it to grow, it has to be commanded by God to grow. Everything in this earth has a mission and a purpose. And if you're walking by a, uh, a flower and pick it for no reason, if you work with you want to give your girlfriend flowers, that's beautiful, that's part of the mission. Tikkun Olam, you're making your girlfriend happy, you're developing a relationship, that's very important. You bring it home for your wife. It does have a positive effect on your Right. But if you're doing it for no reason, you just take pick off a, a leaf, you're chewing it because you, you want to chew it, he says, that's wrong. He says, uh, he says, every sprout and leaf, of, and leaf of grass says something, conveys some meaning. Every stone whispers some inner hidden message in the silence. Every creation utters its song in praise of the Creator. Those words spoken from a pure and holy, this is Rabbi Levine saying, of a pure and holy heart engraved themselves deeply in my heart. From that time on, I began to feel a strong sense of compassion for everything. So this is what he, um, he writes in his biography. Um, but the point is that everything, we in Judaism, we believe everything has a purpose. And therefore, there's another reason not to destroy. Meaning, for no reason, if you're going to pluck a blade of grass, again, if there's a net game, and you, again, you need that flower to give to your girlfriend, that's something else. But if you're doing it for no reason, just to destroy, it's a problem. So, uh, yeah. No, you're, you're, what oh. you want to cover? Four being, even if it, okay. well, let's say, let's four, say that the, the research is true. Fine, let's say. 
But now it's going to create a huge economic dislocation. Forgetting economics, you've got you know still a billion people without water or energy that you know can't be not going to use fossil fuel. You're not going to use coal. Right. So again, we look at the net gain. Is the net gain? No, it's not just the economics because everything right. plays on. the ramifications of this, together with the economics and the moral and social ramifications of it all together. What is there a net gain here for humankind or not? The following presentation was recorded live by the Jewish Ethics Institute. Shalom.